You're listening to Go with Jamarla Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. All right, let's go. Today we have Everett Taylor in the house on the Go program. Uh, welcome to the show, Everett. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me, man. So we're in LA and let's dive into the big news out here first. Uh, we just got done uh, taping uh, Devin Johnson, who's the president of LeBron James uh, and uh, Mavericks uh, media company. Uninterrupted? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So sure. uh, let's talk about LeBron coming to LA. What was your bet uh, kind of publicly? Where did you think he was going? Um, I absolutely thought he was coming to LA. I thought all of the signs pointed to him coming to LA. I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm a huge LeBron fan uh, as well. Um, I definitely have grown appreciation for his game over the years. And me thinking as a businessman in the landscape of the NBA, the thing about the NBA is that it's completely unpredictable, right? Yesterday, one of a top 10 player, even though he's coming off an injury, DeMarcus Cousins is sign, signing with the Warriors. There's no injuries happen and happen all the time things happen all the time right the one thing you can control is being in a place that you love that your family loves a place where you can build your empire um, and make a difference and uh, I think LA presented that opportunity as well playing for a story franchise um, which can help him build and grow his brand even more um, so with everything that happens in the NBA and the modern NBA now it's no guarantee to w- win a ring, and I, don't th- I, don't, I think he his legacy is solidified, and so I think L.A. was, like, the number one choice. It makes sense from a business perspective. But a, were yeah. you thinking that because he's investing so much in media inter- and entertainment in terms of uh, films, television shows, he's planning his – he has planted his flag in L.A. From a, from a business perspective, but did that kind of tip you off that he was coming here? Absolutely. I mean, I think – uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, L.A. is L.A. is really is, is L.A. and New York. And who wants to go to, to the Knicks right now? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Right. Um, and so L.A. made the most sense with all of his businesses and companies and his media conglomerate here in Los Angeles. And I think his family loves it here. I think he loves it here. And I think at the end of the day, and this is something that I've learned about myself, is personal happiness comes first. You know, people are going to you know, say this or that about you in the media. People are going to say, oh, you're X and whatever in the finals. What he has to worry about is life after basketball. You know, the, his his basketball career is just a short portion of his entire life, right? You're saying the same um, things that uh, Dan Gilbert uh, mentioned to the media after the decision where he, he pretty much said the same uh, stuff that you're saying uh, in terms of his business interests uh, in L.A., but also – his mind is kind of after basketball it's as well. after basketball, yeah. man. He, the, the man's 33 years old, you know, and I mean, at most you, you would think he has maybe seven to eight years max um, to keep going um, and maybe four to five years at a high level. And so uh, I think this was the best decision for him. Are you a Laker fan? Oh, no, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. Uh, so I just want to see good basketball in L.A. Uh, the Clippers is not doing it for me right now. Um, I'm really excited for LeBron to come, and you know we're literally what 12 minutes walking from Staples Center Center right now. So to be able to just walk over and you know catch some LeBron games is gonna be dope. You've been active uh, early on on Twitter. Right. Uh, what do you love and hate about Black Twitter? Black Twitter. Um, I love the fact 
that we have so much power over culture, right? Uh, culture as a currency, the way that we move and we shift things. Um, and, you know, how much power we have from, you know, just the things that we do and we say on Twitter. And um, not only that, but also just the entertainment value that it brings and the, and the joy it brings to people on a daily basis. I think um, that's one of the most amazing things about black Twitter and the fact that we're actually driving a multi-billion dollar business. We are the most valuable asset that Twitter Inc. has, right? Uh, is it problematic for you uh, that when you look at the shareholder base and the top executives of a Facebook, of a Twitter, uh, and a Google, right. where, as you know, you know, we're very engaged on social media, we're setting trends, we're creating new things within right, social media. Absolutely. So to your point, we're building up the equity of over a trillion uh, uh possibly a trillion dollars of media and advertising value, meaning we're getting it cracking on social media, we're engaged, we're producing a lot of content on social media, but that value that you talked about goes to people who don't look like us. It goes to the other side. Right. Uh, how problematic is that for you? Yeah, and just to you know, kind of finish your question that you were asking, that's the, that's the side that I didn't get to, is the fact that you know, black Twitter is being milked and we don't have any compensation for that. There's only a, a, a small percentage, probably less than 1% of black Twitter that has been able to like use, you know, that creativity and, and, and that audience to utilize it for other things. For myself, you know, being part of black Twitter, um, you know, automatically, I've been able to leverage Twitter um, for connections and resources and then also to, um, you know, build a customer base for my companies, right? So I've been able to utilize that. Not everyone has those skill sets to do that. And the fact that they are, are leveraging our talents and our creativity to build wealth for themselves. I don't know if you've seen Twitter's uh, uh, stock prices lately. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's uh, doubled since it's low. It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, so, um, you know, the fact that we don't have a part in that and that these companies, when you think of Twitter and not only Twitter, but Facebook complex, these companies that really, you know, utilize, you know, black creativity, uh, to, to build businesses, right. That you, you think about complex and you look at their executive board no black people i think they might have just hired their first black person right yeah i'm very familiar with, with complex and it's been like that it was like that from the jump right yeah. right and then you look at twitter would you, you stop look. short of calling complex media culture vulture mm, i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to go that the, far yeah. i don't want to go that far <laughs> um you know I, i'm not yeah. trying to offend too many political connects here yeah. but um but i definitely think that they because they because they definitely hire people of the culture right in lower levels right and they utilize that talent those talents and abilities of like you take like a nadesca right who i think is supremely talented right and you know they utilize that talent but the real decision makers and, and movers and shakers in that company don't look like us and that's across the board for the most powerful um you know media companies in the world uh, let's go into your story. You have a very interesting story out of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, let's talk about 
you know, where you come from, the adversity you went through early on and possibly how that um, was leveraged to help you become a business leader. Right. So um, I was raised in Southside Richmond, Virginia, um, 804. Um, proud of it. Um, you know, for me, it feels like that almost cliche story. And I've never been that person to want sympathy for myself because I know I'm one of the lucky ones. But, you know, I dealt with, you know, having a single mother, uh, raising us, growing up in the projects, not having a lot. And, you know, the people that I first saw around me that were businessmen were, were, were dope boys, were drug dealers and things like that just seeing how they moved and the first kind of business, you know, collecting business acumen that I saw around me were them, how they operated their business. And you can feel however way you want to about the drug game, but there's a lot of things that you can learn from how these guys operate. Um, and those were the, the first things that I kind of picked up. And then I also saw people having nice things, you know, and I came from a, you know, household where people didn't really have nice things and people didn't aspire to have more. And even though I didn't agree with what those guys on the street were doing, I did appreciate the fact that they wanted more for themselves. And a lot of people within my family, they were very happy with the bare minimum. And I appreciate that about them. But I knew that I always, not necessarily superficial things, but I knew that I wanted something better for myself. And, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, I got into the streets too. Um, so I started selling drugs when I was 12, 12, 13 years old. And my mom saw some of that money starting to come in and she already knew what was up. And so she, this, this actually changed my life. She forced me to get my first job um, at 14 years old, which was a marketing associate job at Eastern National, which was a company in Richmond. And that's where I learned, you know, learned about marketing and, and picked up those trades and those skills that have defined my career thus far, right? And I was able to learn and hone those skills very, very early. And I say all the time that we all have talents. And, you know, most of us don't get the opportunity to really tap into them. Marketing was my talent. And I was able to work in that company and and really build those skill sets. And unfortunately, I was laid off, uh, you know, a couple years later. And because of certain, you know, family matters, we ended up homeless and not homeless. Like, hey, I'm staying at this person's crib and that person's crib. I mean, homeless. I'm actually on the street in Richmond, Virginia. It gets cold there. It rains, all that. And that was a very, very difficult situation for me being homeless, but it was one of the most monumental things that could have happened to me for two reasons. Number one, from a marketing perspective, you learn so much about human behavior and what drives people when you see people that don't have anything. You see people at their core, you see people that you, you really see what drives people and from a marketing perspective to really understand people and have that emotional intelligence that what drives people at their core is very, very important. And you get the opportunity to see that um, being homeless. And number two is that I didn't have computer access uh, growing up. And, 
you know, to seek shelter, uh, to seek shelter, I went to the local library and they had computers. And that was my first time really using the Internet. I was 17 years old and I come across Mark Zuckerberg. And where I was from, if you didn't play ball or you didn't rap or you didn't sell drugs, that wasn't really an alternative for you. Right. Or that's what was thought. And I, for the first time, realized that entrepreneurship and tech offer me this path that I didn't think even existed for myself. And this was something that was a huge opportunity for me. And it really changed my way of thinking about about getting out of the scenario and situation that I was in. I want to share with you a great company called TopTal. That's T-O-P-T-A-L. This is a company that I use if you're in the market for a freelancer, uh, whether it's an engineer or a designer. This is one of the leading companies that's going to help you identify and hire top freelancing talent. Uh, you can go to mogulthem.com forward slash TopTal. You click on that link and register and someone will get right back to you to get more information. Be sure to uh, check out TopTal. How did you develop the comfort level with going out in corporate America as a black man and being open that, hey, I used to, I used to push weight. I mean, like, what's the step of getting comfortable talking like that? Because it's already hard. Well, well right? let me clarify before, like, Drake Drake puts out a, a diss record challenge in my street cred. Um, I didn't push weight. I sold weed. That was it. When it got to the point where, you know, how they how they started Young Boys Out was like, hey, here, sell, sell weed. You start with nicks and dimes, and then you move up, and you move up. And I started moving up and moving up. And then you get to this inflection point where you're doing well, where they introduced crack co cocaine to the to the mix, right? And I was lucky that just at that kind of inflection point where I was about to get into that, my mom kind of saved me and, and pulled but, me out of the mix. But it's... It doesn't sound like it's a big deal for you. Uh, obviously, uh, you're accomplished. Uh, but as you're going up the ladder in corporate America and building these companies and working with all these partners such as Snapchat, uh, was it a struggle just like to be straight up, hey, I used to sell weed? You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different for me because my career path has been extremely entrepreneurial. And in terms of working with people, it's because they've come to me, it's not because I've come to them. And that's a very, very important difference, right? Is when you have built equity within yourself in terms of talent, abilities, accomplishments, that you hold you know, more weight in those conversations. Were you sharing that early in your career? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You don't you don't share those things. And I don't encourage people to share those things. They say, oh, you know, Jay-Z talks about losing 92 bricks. You know, uh, nah, you're not hove, man. You don't don't do that. But when I when initially in, in, in those early days, of course, of course, you know, I didn't do that. So there's a hundred geek marketing geeks out there. You know, right. they may come from uh Columbia, or they may come from Princeton or wherever, but they haven't been as successful consistently as you. Uh, and it sounds like you have a competitive advantage, but it's from the streets, uh, meaning that, hey, you can put the geek, I can compete with the geeks, I can compete with folks from the Ivy League schools, 
uh, but you have a uh, competitive advantage because of that experience in the streets. Yeah, the emotional intelligence aspect is is huge for me. You know, I tell people all the time that the technical sides of marketing, how to do X, Y, Z, you can teach that to anyone. But what are the intangibles that you have? What are the things that separate you from everyone else? As we we enter into a world where bots and automation and all these things are coming, what are the, the, the things that separates you from just having these technical skills? And me really being able to understand people at their core, to be able to understand somebody in the streets, some someone from lower social economic backgrounds, to people that are wealthy. I've seen both ends of the spectrum. That gives me a huge advantage because I've been lower class, I've been middle class, I've been upper class. I've seen, I've been through the gauntlet, and not a lot of people have been able to experience life that way. And then also, once they reach a certain pinnacle, be able to still empathize and still be able to understand those that are still in those places. Okay, uh, walk the audience through uh, your first few companies, uh, marketing-related companies that you founded okay. or co-founded. Yeah, I mean, all four are actually marketing-related. My first company, EG, was uh, I started this company literally because I was 19 years old. I had to drop out of college, and you know, I saw a friend, Dre, who was. How long who, did you spend at Virginia Tech? Total three years, but they were, I dropped out three different times <laughs> um, that threw parties and it just inspired me to throw parties too when I got back home and I realized there was like a gap in the market because if you weren't 21 years old, there wasn't a lot to do, right? So you turn 18, you couldn't go to the clubs, you couldn't go to the bars like that, right? And so I wanted to create these events. And so I really got into event marketing. And then I built event marketing tools on top of that to make those experiences better. So the first tool that I built was a tool for people to get their photos from those events. So this is back when, you know, most people had flip phones or blackberries right they didn't really have like iphones and these 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 nice smartphones with the nice cameras and so we built a way for people to get pictures easily from the events that they're going to and actually paying to get those pictures too if they wanted physical pictures or pictures without watermarks the second tool that we built was an actual um, uh, payment processing tool for events. So if you've heard of Eventbrite, we actually launched our tool a year after Eventbrite. And so people going to events could pay for tickets to events because some of the places that we were throwing events and parties, they weren't the you know the best neighborhoods. People would get robbed and things like that. People didn't want to have that type of cash on them. And so people could pay for these events um, online. So everything that we were doing was really event marketing based. The second company uh, is called Growth Hackers and Growth Hackers started off as a marketing community um, centered around growth hacking. And what year did you launch that? This is 2013. So the first company was 2009. Uh, this company is 2013. And Growth Hackers uh, was a platform and community for people wanting to learn and gain knowledge around growth marketing, which is a technical uh, lean style of marketing. And so we built this community where we collected the best content around the web, around growth marketing and product and startups. And then we also created our own content around how some of the most successful companies in the world were growing. 
and we built this community of two million people and then we built a software tool. We did two things to monetize. We we built a funnel for people to recruit marketing talent. And then the second thing was we built a team management tool for marketing teams that are running experiments. Um, and then the third company is Millicent's that was founded in 2014. And Millicent's is a digital marketing firm helping companies from startups to bigger companies with their digital marketing, whether it's social media marketing, SEO, conversion rate optimization, anything, you know, uh, Facebook ads, Instagram ads. We we run the gauntlet for that. And we've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, That was 2014. In 2016, my last marketing company is Pop Social, which is a social media software company um, where we saw a gap in the market of people wanting to affordably grow their brands on social media and we knew that most people couldn't afford you know paying a marketing firm like my millicent's you know thousands of dollars a month to grow their brand and so we created a software product that people could grow their brands on social media acquire users build their audience and all those different things for at affordable prices okay so uh facebook of course uh they have uh uh, updated their policies uh, in part due to public backlash and the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal, as you know. Um, has that impacted any of your businesses in terms of the ROI and, and the customer acquisition costs that you guys were getting pre-election? In terms um, of just what Facebook, uh, of course, tinkering with things on Instagram and Facebook. I think the only thing that that's affected is, you know, we follow the rules. We, we, we make sure to follow all the guidelines of Facebook and Instagram. We don't want those problems, right? But I think the only thing is, is that they've become very strict on some of the actions and things that you can take on Instagram um, as we're helping people. Like, people can't like as many photos an hour anymore or they can't do this or do that and instagram is banning accounts they're looking for anything that looks even a little bit suspect so as you're trying to grow these brands and you're taking actions on these accounts and things like that that has definitely affected us but man our growth our growth has been crazy um i can't put out the numbers out there like i mean publicly we we already put out that we did two million on pop social for our first year we've far exceeded that in our second year in, um, you know, growing ourselves into an eight-figure company in, in two years. And so we're really, really excited about the growth and introducing new new software um, from, you know, different platforms and things like that. But, uh, but no, it hasn't really slowed us down too much. Are your clients uh, primarily looking for uh, conversions? Like, hey, you got to buy something, you got to sign up. Are is are they looking more so? I need engagement in terms of shares, likes, and yeah. followers. Are we talking about Pop Social right now? Yeah. Okay. So for Pop Social, it's been one of the most interesting social experiments for me to see what really drives people in terms of what uh, of growing an audience. And so we have everyone from a person that literally has not a damn thing to sell, not a reason to grow their brand that says. I just like followers. I like people liking my photos. And that's weird that we we have a society now where people are willing to spend 50 bucks a month to say, this just makes me feel good, right? Yeah. I mean, having followers just makes me feel good. I still think that's the minority of our customers. I think the majority of our customers are growing 
Uh, and to those who do that, keep doing it. We love you. Uh, uh, but the majority of our customers are looking to build audiences to convert them to buying something or committing to something, whether it's listening to their podcast, downloading their music, buying their merch, you know, buying their product, visiting their restaurant. It's all conversion. I think it's a, it's a huge conversion or people that, you know, say they're planning to launch something and they're like, Hey, I tell people all the time, there's no bad time to grow your brand or grow an audience on social media. For the audience, for our audience, uh, how much budget do you need to work with you on Pop Social? Oh, our our basic plan is fifty dollars a month. Okay, got it. Fifty bucks a month. You know, we make it. You know, we make it super super affordable. Um, you know, I, I created this because, um, in part, that a lot of black and brown entrepreneurs and people trying to grow brands didn't have. $5,000 for a retainer to work with my marketing firm or 10,000 or whatever, whatever it may be. Right. And I wanted to create a product that could be affordable to the masses that said, Hey, I only got, you know, a $200 budget. Right. And to be able to have a product that was affordable can genuinely help people. Did you pitch investors and raise capital for any of your companies yourself? First company? No. Um, we were profitable because we started throwing parties day one and then we used that money to build the tech. Um, the second company, Growth Hackers, um, raised about $7 million. Um, but that company, I had co-founders. So the other three companies, I didn't have co-founders. That company, I had co-founders, white male co-founders, right? Two white male co-founders, which made raising capital a lot easier, especially because one of them being famous within the Silicon Valley world. Third company, Millicent's, was a marketing firm, didn't raise any capital for that. And then the fourth company, Pop Social, actually pitched it to a couple investors, got shot down right away. I'm a, that type of stuff puts a chip on my shoulder. I don't have time for it. I'm like, look, I'm just gonna put my own capital, you know, hire my own team, take money out of my own account, to build the tech, invest hundreds like, of thousands of dollars. I'm not out here begging. No, you know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna beg for you. I know how profitable this could be, and you know, in two years now, we're an eight-figure company, right? Yeah, and highly profitable. So right? you took a lot of risk. I took a lot, uh, of and, and, and that's that's what you see uh, with a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs. The for for example, Elon Musk. You know, he cashes out of uh, PayPal, in uh, he puts his entire net worth on very risky bets. He bets on himself. And as you know, uh, Tesla was about to file for uh, bankruptcy um, right before they got a, uh, a federal loan. Uh, and of course, the rest is history. Uh, but your, your experience where you're betting on yourself, if you first say, hey, I want to diversify my risk, I want to get investors, the process starts to seem funny like, hey, this is just not me. It's yeah. like I'm not. I'm just. I'm not, I'm not out here, yeah. kind of, you know, going flying across the country pitching these type of people. Right, right. And how many investors uh, until you you got to that point where like it only took me, I think, for Pop Social, two or three investors. To for it, me, like just seeing the feedback and the feedback was kind of the same. They're not gonna get it. They're they're not gonna get it. They're not gonna get it. And so. Um, the feedback was was the same, and I just realized like I, I'm not I'm not for this. Yeah, I thought you, you essentially I could I could relate to that. Just you're not built to I'm not built to be for trying it. to explain I'm a, everything. I'm gonna I'm make it I'm gonna make it on my own in in, in two yeah. years. 
in two years in terms of just capital is the most successful company I've started. And that's just in two years. The trajectory that we're on could be a lot bigger in three to four years, right? And we're profitable. We're good. We don't need any investors. Um, we're in a good place. But they would have saw a really nice return on their money. I knew with my audience, I knew with my understanding of people and what they want, who the hell doesn't want more followers? Who the hell doesn't want to build their audiences and get more engagement and things like that? People naturally want these things. Brands naturally want these things, right? And this was an affordable option to spending thousands of dollars on Facebook ads or thousands of dollars on a marketing firm. I understood that. You know, sometimes people don't see the picture. I'm actually in the process of of starting two new companies, uh, one of which I'm going to bootstrap. The other, I'm not sure because it's going to be uh, capital intensive. Um, and so just the idea of I might actually have to play that game is, is what, yeah. What do you great. say uh, to, hey, you know, you're managing – uh, multiple companies right. uh, like Elon Musk are uh, like uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter uh, with Square and Twitter. Uh, so, you know, do you feel like at a certain point I can't bring my A game on one because I'm spread out across three or four? Absolutely. So what people don't understand is that one, I have an amazing team at each company. Right. Um, and, and, and currently as I'm kind of getting ready for these two new ventures when i when i went to skirt so i was cmo chief marketing officer at skirt which got acquired by fair.com recently when i went there i stepped down as ceo of my marketing firm and i had somebody to replace me right and then uh as well he was a gm and ran it um and then for pop social my CTO was essentially running the company. Right now, as CEO of Pop Social, my biggest thing is utilizing my brand to grow the company. But now, just off a of word of mouth, that it's just kind of, you know, taking its own, right? So I see as a marketing firm, I lost my GM. He went. He ended up going to Google, but um, I can hire another person to to run the marketing firm. Uh, Pop Social is going to be just fine. Right. So I feel confident leaving those companies to work on two new things. You know, um, I think you have to understand, hey, you can't stretch yourself out too thin. And there's a certain point that you can take each company um, and, you know, you got to be able to take your talents elsewhere. Uh, you've been vocal on social media about uh, founders um, doing too much press, uh, doing too much PR. Uh, we're. Uh, 70% is, you know, in some cases it could, Hey, you know, you, you, you put in 70% in PR and not in kind of really leading your company. Uh, can you talk about that in terms of, you know, at least I, I've seen your online mentoring and points of view on this, but talk about that. Right. So, you know, a lot of people, they, they think it's hypocrisy because they see all these these magazines, Fortune and Forbes and all these things. But they don't realize is that these there's a difference between organic opportunities coming in and you being really focused on, hey, I want to get speaking events. I want to get press. I want to be on this podcast. When that is your focus, it's completely different when those organic opportunities come in. I think a lot of people, they get a little bit of success. And the and the first thing they think about is like, oh man, I want to, 
you know, I want to get in Forbes. I want to do this. I want to do that. The truth of the matter is, and somebody that, that works in media and work, has worked in media, you understand that a lot of times this press doesn't move the needle. Like it works for the media company because they get their hits. They use you for those hits, right? And those clicks and, and that traffic. But in terms of for your actual business, is it really going to move the needle? A lot of times it doesn't, especially if you don't have the right product and the right channel in which you're going through. And so I tell people all the time that, you know, don't, you know, press pause on progress by chasing this notoriety and, you know, this press and all these things, the things that you really need to be focused on is building a great product, building a great team. You know, if you, if you look at even our white counterparts, right. in these, in these companies, they're not, a lot of them aren't out here doing a bunch of press all the time and things like that. Are you suggesting that if someone was to really run the numbers and, and, and conduct a study that the black tick, tech CEO is over indexing on PR investment in terms of time. This, this is just what I've seen personally from the most successful black tech entrepreneurs and the most successful white tech entrepreneurs, the most successful white tech entrepreneurs. You didn't see a Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel, the guys from Stripe, John Collison and Patch. You don't see them out here speaking at a bunch of conferences. You don't see them when they were building their companies. They weren't doing that. Yeah, right? it's not enough time in the day. It's not enough time because the, the thing is, is that they're building companies at scale. And I'm not trying to throw shade because, honestly, I'm just doing this off of... It's just observation. Observation. Yeah. But it seems like as soon as like we, we create an LLC, it's like, all right, let me hop on these. Let me hop on these panels. Let me get this press. Let me do this. And it's like, you know, you'll see something where this entrepreneur, this entrepreneur... Uh, you know, did 100K in its first year. And it's like, why are we selling? Like, that's cool, but why are we celebrating this? Why are you trying to get press for doing 100K in your first year? You should be trying to build a $100 million company and not worrying about that press. Yeah, it sounds like uh, in a tech CEO context uh, that you're like Suge Knight at the Source Awards and you're like, you know, hey, if you don't want... <laughs> uh, you know, someone all up in your videos and, and, and all of that come to death row. Right. Uh, it, it sounds like your recommendation, uh, is that, you know, PR could fit for, for some of us. Uh, but you see too many black tech startup CEOs investing too much in PR too much time. And, and it all depends on the product. And I tell people all the time for pop social currently, right? We are a consumer product. And if I go and I speak to a thousand people and if I can convert 50 people to using the product in those 50 people, you know, word of mouth, maybe add an extra 10 people. And with the average lifetime value that we're currently having, that's about $80,000 worth of revenue that I just did from one speaking engagement. So for me to do a speaking engagement to a consumer focused conference or event, it makes sense for me and my brand. But if you're building a B2B business, then why are you speaking here and speaking there on this panel? It doesn't really move the needle for you. So you have to understand what are your growth levers. Maybe 
press and 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 doing conferences. I know for pop social it helps because I can be very charismatic. I can I can sell people on the product right then and there, and I'll give people a code at the conference, and then boom, we're we're there, right? Um, but for the most part, that's just not the case for most of us. Uh, what would you say? Uh in defense of the, the the black founders who are going hard at PR, uh, that, hey, some of us don't have the luxury and the insurance behind us as some of these other founders, white founders that you compared us to. So if the funding environment, the sales environment is tougher, are perceived as tougher, I need to go a little bit harder on the PR front. This is right. something that I can control. Right, right. What, what, how would you respond to that? And, and, and I understand that. But, like, you know, there's a difference between being strategic about your press and PR opportunities and, and, and doing it for a business sense. And there's another thing where you're super wrapped up in getting awards and doing press and, and speaking at panels all the time. You start for, you start forgetting about you start what, forgetting what this game is all about, what the real focus is. And like I yeah. said, it's going to seem like hypocrisy because there was a one point in my one point in time where I was doing quite a lot. Right. And you know, I still do speaking engagements, right? I got a couple speaking engage engagements coming up, but what people don't understand is I use that capital from speaking engagements to start new companies. Right. I also use those speaking engagements to gain more customers for pop social because the everyday person is still a pop social customer. Right. What range of fees do you charge uh, for speaking? Oh, I can't say I can't say you that. Can't say I can't say that publicly. <laughs> can't say okay. that publicly. But uh, but it's nice. Uh, I've done there. I can I can be upfront that I've I've amassed, you know, six figures a year off of just speaking engagements. Right. Um, and so that's nice. So when you think about, say, a pop social and you can say, hey, I made X amount of dollars off of speaking or a social media post or whatever that is, I can literally use that capital and just put that towards a new project. It's really nice to have. You're active on the black tech scene, uh, you know, at a high level. What are some of the political and organizational things that you feel like uh, black folks us specifically, right. holding ourselves accountable. What type of stuff do we need to push for and organize to move the needle? Uh, and I'm referencing, you know, 1% uh, or so of venture capital going to uh, uh, black founders. Uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, us not being in the executive ranks and, and kind of not filling out the employee ranks at a lot of these companies who are paying high salaries at a proportionate level uh, uh, to where we are in the population. Uh, you know, what are some things that we can do uh, as a community to move the needle in those areas? Are there any kind of policy ideas that you have? Uh, I think a lot of it is just taking action. I'm gonna offend a lot of people when I say this, but we talk about diversity and inclusion too damn much. Talk about it, not act on it, we talk about it. We have all these panels. We ran about it on Twitter and things like that. But what are the actionable things that we're doing? How are we actually holding these companies accountable? They don't care. They're like, yo, have your panels. Write your little op-eds about it. We don't give a damn. We're still a multi-billion dollar company. You're not doing anything to us. But if 
people within these companies really come together and really start holding these companies accountable, that's something. The problem is, this is going to offend some people too, is that black people get into some black people, not all, but some black people, they get that job at Facebook or they get that job at Google. And it's like, damn, I'm making 200,000 and I'm getting X amount of stock every year and I'm super comfortable, right? I don't want to mess this up. They don't want to mess it up. And so they become quiet and they don't fight. They don't fight the good fight. And Man, that's you, a problem. Yeah, you're touching on uh, the right buttons in terms of uh, uh, that problem. Uh, what uh, Vivek Wadwa, uh, uh, a critic, uh, he's been criticizing uh, racism in Silicon Valley for a long time. Uh, I know it, a lot of people are talking about, talking about it now, uh, but he has been uh, on this subject for a while. And what he said he studied Indian entrepreneurs uh, in Silicon Valley, and his conclusion was uh, that the Indians knew that there was a lot of racism in Silicon Valley, uh, but when some of them started to break through, they set up a lot a mentoring network, and they created organizations where they had a thousand members. Uh, at least one organization had a thousand members in terms of cracking the game of Silicon Valley. And, and obviously, over time, they have figured it out in terms of you know Microsoft, Indian CEO, uh, Google, Indian CEO. A lot of Indian founders are getting funding uh, relative to their uh, population size in Silicon Valley. Um, and, but what he said was, when I talk to your people, when I look at that, the black man and woman in Silicon Valley, you guys don't help each other. He said that, you know, I see the problem. I don't deny the problem. But with you guys, you guys are not really helping each other. Do you think that's fair? I think that's absolutely fair. The people that I was, I was some of the people I was just talking about at these big companies, right? They get in there and they get comfortable and they don't want to help anybody else on the come up right and you you have these like you'll i've seen them i've seen these 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 men and women i, I see you smiling right now because you know exactly who i'm talking about these people will code switch they will do whatever they have to to keep themselves safe and they will not try to help bring others um into the mix and this is not everybody um mentoring a huge thing people don't take the time to actually talk and help and mentor people people are so absorbed and so selfish with their own time all the time and you have to be selfish at times right you can't help everybody but to not want to give your time and genuinely help others not just oh yeah let's grab coffee yada yada oh yeah i'll i'll do this for you Nah, and don't follow up. Like genuinely help each other and create these networks and these in, in these groups. Would it be fair to say that um, hey, you're looking to blame these executives who are not helping at scale? Uh, that that's just part of the system where there's so much fear in that African American uh, executives head. Uh, whether it's a fictional fear or a real fear, that that just comes, that's just part of the oppression. When they go into these companies and they're the only black person there, they are, so they have the executive titles, but they are leading 
with a lot of fear in terms of dealing with other black folks, helping other black folks. Right. I think there's a there's a lot of fear, but then I also think there's a lack of support. I mean, you've had some prominent diversity positions at some of the biggest companies in the world, Apple and Facebook, that had black women at the helm of their, as their ch- chief diversity officer yeah, and then yeah. didn't see any changes, right? Um, so I, I don't think it's a, a situation where they didn't want to change things. Maybe they just didn't get the support either. What if someone said, hey, what do you expect, right? If there's uh, a form of apartheid uh, going on at these big tech companies, uh, two different systems, uh, and there's discrimination, um, that they are going to look for a particular type and pedigree of black person that they're going to be comfortable with, but they're not going to shake the boat, meaning that this is a good person we can put out in the press, hey, look, this is our diversity head, and this is a person who's going to walk the line uh, in terms of I've heard uh, uh, the executive at uh, Facebook, the sister over there, uh, Maxine, I believe Williams and the executive who received her walking papers at Apple. Both of these sisters uh, are on record. You can check it out online where they say that uh, they're, they're pushing a cognitive diversity agenda where the sister at Apple said that you could have diversity with 10 white males in the room. And then they fired her. But I feel like this is the religion of the institution. They just have these black women perfect. Check the gender box, check the race box, put them out to the press. But they're not really doing anything in these streets. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just uh, over here nodding. Yeah. So I banged so much against uh, Facebook uh, publicly, so there's nothing. Uh, yeah, it's kind of out there. It's... Uh, it's 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 really it's really really interesting to see that you know you when you see a black person in certain roles at these companies and you're like oh Stanford MBA Harvard cool you know comes from you know Bridgewater Connecticut or something <laughs> like that you know it's like okay I get it I get it you know um, and I understand that but here's the thing not everyone's not everyone's like that and. You know, I had a meeting with CAA uh, recently, and the brother, super cool brother, um, I ain't gonna put his name out there. When I first, when he first came up to me, I was like, "Oh man, he ain't, you know, he ain't for the culture, man." You know, he just this his whole vibe, right? I was like, "Ah," but as soon as we walked out that building, we could actually be ourselves. I was like, "All right." You know, he one of us. He's one of us. But, you know, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough playing that game. It's, yeah. Just to, to keep it uh, real uh, to your point, there's soldiers for sure. You know, you'll find them at these companies, but there's just too many Negroes. Uh, if you're listening on this, we need more people to stand up and you got to lift the people behind you up. Find a way to to help and take more risk. That The question to you is. In tech, in Silicon Valley, do we have too many Dr. Kings and not enough Malcolm X's? Meaning that the leadership, the people who are in these systems, they're too, I'm not calling Dr. King soft. He evolved over time. But what I mean is that, that 
the our community has always been balanced where we have kind of some folks over here, but then we have a more militant pack and they work, they kind of do their thing, but it pushes the community forward. But when you look at the diversity politics crowd and the diversity folks, everyone is kind of on the soft kind of in where they will only go so far in calling out these companies and kind of really pushing these companies and take it up a notch. Right. You know, um, to your point, I think there's a reason why I'm mostly entrepreneurial, right? Because I understand for a Facebook or a Google or someone like that to take a chance on me being an executive. First of all, the odds are already against me being under 30, right? Being under 30 years old, it's, I was just having a conversation with a friend. I don't know what it is, but it's like once you hit 30, just a, a slew of new opportunities come open to you when you hit 40 a slew because people see that age and they see that as a barrier like we can't give this person that opportunity right but the second thing is is that can a google handle someone like me can a facebook handle somebody like me who's going to be outspoken that's really going to challenge things the truth is those people haven't been the ones that tend to stick around very very long Right. You take a look at like a Bose at Uber. Bose is outspoken. She's going to be herself, you know. Um, And from my from my understanding, everything was good at Uber. But it's 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 like, but how long are those situations going to last? Could you see uh, or could you support um, a policy uh, in the state of California, for example, where the government, the state government comes in and says, for all the venture capitalists in this state, you have to disclose the race and gender and provide greater transparency uh, on the entrepreneurs that you're funding. That just, the data needs to open up and, and here's where I'm going. Um, history has showed that in almost any market, whether it's taxis, mortgages, uh, uh, you know, business loans, that the government, this is not me talking, this is not anybody, the American government has said that there's been systemic discrimination against African-Americans in various industries. And you even seen the discrimination when you apply technology and you let the white actors within the tech ecosystem just play out their natural behavior where they discriminate. And of course, Airbnb calls an Eric Holder, meaning that Airbnb is not trying to do something, but if they just let the society transact with each other, there's discrimination against uh, people of color. But do you think something like that needs to take place where the regulators have to come in, not saying that, hey, we need affirmative action or any of that stuff, but because of the pattern of discrimination in various industries, we want you to open up the data on the entrepreneurs that you're founding or funding. I mean, that sounds good, but that, that opens up a can of worms, right, to to a lot of different things. You know, that's something I would have to, to, to really to really think on. When I you think, say a can of worms, uh, if, if VCs who are investing, let's say, $100 million a year, and they're seeing a lot of founders, what, what cans of uh, worms would it open up if they just, they had to release publicly uh, the race and gender uh, of the people walking through the door. I mean, a lot of these, like these, these are private 
companies, right? And when you get to a point where private companies have to start releasing information and you are picking and choosing what kind of private companies are releasing that type of information, it, it gets it gets sticky. It, it definitely gets sticky. The same way I feel about the whole, you know, the streaming stuff with people who have done X, Y, Z and, and banning them from streaming platforms. Like, it's like, man, there's like, I live in LA. There's a lot of trash in the music industry and a lot of stories that people don't know about. Um, so it's just a very sticky situation when you start to get into those things. I think for me, how I'm trying to combat that personally is I understand that the companies I've created thus far, while they've been very successful, they are not an Uber. They're not a Snapchat. They're not a Facebook. I've not created something where I've been able to really generate wealth for a diverse set of people. I pay great salaries. You know, people are comfortable, but there's a difference between being able to pay somebody 150K a year. And there's another thing between taking a company public or, you know, getting a huge billion dollar acquisition and making 300, 400 new multimillionaires that look like you, right? There's a complete difference in that. Um, so I think wealth creation is one thing that I'm very focused on, but also teaching people to support one another because you talked about those VC numbers and how there's not like a lot of African-American VCs, but how many of those African-American VCs are really for the culture? How many of those VCs are actually out here funding black companies. That's something that people don't really talk about. I've talked personally and spoken personally to black founders raising capital and saying they're finding more success from people from, you know, white male, you know, VCs than, you know, people that look like them, you know? Um, and that's a problem. Yeah, that sounds, uh, I mean, if, I guess this is kind of, unless it's a, um, uh, a really big pattern though, uh, but just the, the black VCs I know uh, are uh, investing in uh, uh, black founders. Maybe, it, you know, I'm just, I'm having trouble because I could see an entrepreneur saying, hey, you know, this black VC uh, invested in this white woman and didn't invest in me. Or there could be a crowd of that, but I just think that that may be unfair to the the black VC. Oh, I'm not saying all black. VCs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not well, saying, saying all black. The ones that you're familiar with, you're, you're no. You're saying I know amazing black VCs okay. that are that are funding black founders, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that it's problematic that we still have black VCs that aren't funding black startups. Got it. There are black VCs out there, and I'm not gonna put out any names that that aren't investing in, in in black founders would it be problematic for you uh if kobe launched a venture capital fund uh jay-z uh is affiliated or owns uh a couple of venture capital funds um but the guy that's running jay-z's new fund yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's what i'm saying guy. like so there's other celebrities who have launched VC funds, black celebrities who have launched VC funds. Would it be problematic for you if they said 10% of our capital goes to black founders? Is that, it's just right off top that that's a problematic for you. I think for, it's problematic to put a number to it. It should no, I'm be. Not, I'm not, saying, I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying that it's a target, right. but 
someone shows you the books and they looked at all the black celebrities who are launching VC funds and let's say in aggregate they're 100 million but out of that 100 million of all these uh, black celebrities and athletes together they have invested 100 million but only 10 million went to black founders it's just at a high level is that problematic for you if, if that was the case it just depends on who they saw because here's the thing I'm a big believer in making smart investments at the same time. And I also understand the same way that there's white people out here with terrible startup ideas. There's black people out here with awful startup ideas. And there's a difference between a person with an awful idea, right? Not getting funded and complaining about someone not funding them. And there's someone who has an amazing idea that has extreme scalability and has shown that they've been able to, you know, make, you know, great revenue and, and, and grow, you know, percent over percent over time, right? Um, week over week, month over month. There's a difference when those people aren't getting, getting, you know, so it just really depends on who's coming to the table. Yeah. What I would say in defense of, uh, the black VC, uh, is that the, the issues in the, on the white VC side, uh, where you're not getting a lot of uh, 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 are any black uh, founders uh, uh, funded uh, is that that problem on that side bleeds over to the black VC side because I'm thinking if I'm a black VC that if these big VC funds are already in the pot, they're going to bring it to your black VC that lowers the risk and it increases the probability of success. I don't have to do a ton of due diligence because these other professionals are already in the pot. I get access, I'm an athlete, they know my name, I'm getting access to this deal. Right, well, one thing that happens in the industry, and like I don't mean any disrespect by this, but taking Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the biggest right, yeah. uh, venture capital firms, you have smaller firms that will follow up their investments, right? They, they won't invest unless that firm is kind of coming into coming into it. So you have like um, uh, Queensbridge, which which with Nas, right? A lot of their investments, if you really follow, they're they're following up on Idris and Horowitz investments, right? And they're coming in with like smaller amounts, but yeah. they're kind of following the lead on. Not saying that they're doing it all the time, but you see a lot of smaller funds that are kind of connected to bigger funds and they follow the lead of those bigger funds. So if that bigger fund isn't investing in black companies, they might not invest in black companies, right? And so you see that all the time. Now, Queensbridge, they are investing in black companies as well. But as you can see, like a lot of their big wins are non-black companies. If you really love the Go Podcast, one way to support us is going to moguldom.com, M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com forward slash survey. Fill out that quick survey. That gives us better information on our audience. It helps us with our sponsors. Uh, That's one big way you can support us and keep our movement going. Go to moguldom.com forward slash survey. Thank you. Uh, you've had a lot of W's uh, in your uh, short career. You're still right. under uh, 30. You racked up a lot of W's. But talk to our audience about a big L you took and how you regrouped and kind of learned uh, from it. Oh, a big L that I took. Man, I have a lot of L's. But like one that stands out but that you learned from uh, and it's helped you. Um, 
I think selling my first company. I think that we as black people need to do our research and understand our worth. And you have to have the thinking in your mind that if someone is willing to give you X, how valuable are you to them? When I saw the first check from my first company, most money I've ever seen in my life, right? That person that bought that company bought it to flip it. He bought that company from me and flipped it for seven or eight X more a few months after he bought it from me, right? And so me getting all excited, not understanding what the value of the tech that I built or the company that I built, not understanding, you know, uh, what it really meant to, to sell a company and how you value a company. I didn't know what I was doing, and I ended up selling a company for a lot less than I should have. Did you hold uh, like an auction or a bidding process, or was it just kind no, of— No, someone, you know? someone came, came to me about it, and I'm not from—I wasn't from that Silicon Valley. I was still in Virginia, you know, not from that Silicon Valley world, so I didn't, I didn't really understand. You know, I didn't understand what that meant. You know, and in and, and, and I'll sell you a, like a one A to that one is the the first comp the second company that I got acquired, which I was the head of marketing for. When I went there, you know, I got X thousands of amounts amount of shares, but this was you know shortly after I sold my first company, where I still wasn't in the know and I didn't understand that. You know, I got all those shares, but I didn't know what those shares meant, right? I didn't know it was it. It was thousands and thousands of shares. I was like, oh, that, this must be a lot. Yeah. But but I didn't understand to ask the questions of, hey, I was so excited to get started and be a VP of marketing for my first startup company. And I was 22 years old. I didn't think, hey, how much is this really worth? How much equity is this? So you, you believe know? if you held out, you could have had multiple buyers for sure and you can get the same price. I built, we built the same technology that Eventbrite built. And Eventbrite is worth $4 billion. I did not get anything close to $4 billion. Not anything close to a billion or a hundred million or 50 million or 10 million, right? So seeing that and, and understanding not having the frame of mind and, and in, in taking the time to really gain knowledge about startups, technology, the value of things. Um, that's the reason why I came out to Silicon Valley in California in the first place, was because I needed to learn that lesson. Now, some people will see selling your first company at 21, that's a W. In the grand scheme, it wasn't a W. Obviously, the, the marketing... Uh the marketing tactics, the innovation, the disruption that's going on, uh, it's getting tougher and tougher to kind of stay ahead in terms of what works and what doesn't. Uh, do you have a process that has allowed you uh, to stay in front of the game or, 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 or ride with the game? Absolutely. And that's building great products. Building great products. At the end of the day, I tell people all the time, a great product with product market fit, with the ability to really catch fire via word of mouth 
for some of our audience, can you explain a product market fit? Uh, a product market fit is having a pro having a product that the market actually wants and needs at that time. So you could create a product that the market isn't ready for. You can create a product that too early. Too early. You can create a product too late, right? Um, so it, it just it just all depends, right? I know a guy who created Snapchat before Snapchat. Too early. Right. Or and didn't have the right resources and things like that. So you got to you got to it's, it's got to be right timing, right place, right time. And you have to have the right product. Right. And a product that people actually want. But if you're able to create a great product, Pop Social is a great product. Our, our, our biggest we haven't spent any money on ads at all, any paid marketing. None. And we're, we are where we are because we created a great product. I utilize my personal brand and we have word of mouth. And I've realized that when you think of the best products, Instagrams, the Ubers of the world, all this Airbnbs, you heard it from somebody else because they built a great product. I've seen that uh, you're working with Snapchat on a couple of things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or can you talk? Yeah, about yeah, that? yeah. Um, so uh, I'm working alongside Snapchat to to launch a innovative incubator called Yellow. And Yellow is innovative in the sense that most incubators or launch pads are very like these tech focused launch pads, right? We want people from all different backgrounds. Um, so you don't have to be a tech entrepreneur. You could be a creative. You could be a, a media person. You could be a, a personality, right? Um, but we want to give people a substantial investment of 150K and give them free office space in Snapchat HQ um, or Snap Inc. Do you guys HQ. have like a set equity like for the 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 it's 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 going to vary depending okay, on yeah. depending on the company because you know here's the thing like if if a company is like say i brought pop social to the table and we're profitable we don't necessarily need it we just need the extra i'm not going to give you 10 percent of my company right or 20 yeah. or whatever it is right for 150k right yeah. but if i'm somebody who's like man i don't have any resources I'll give you 10, 10% for 150K and all the resources that I'm going to get, it makes more sense, right? Yeah. Um, and so it just, it's going to vary. So it's not necessarily kind of like a pre-seed or – because you see uh, some uh, incubators where we're taking X percent. Right. But usually, you know, very early stage. Yeah, I mean, we have an idea in mind of what percent we want to take. Yeah. But we – like I said, if we, we come across somebody that – is at a later stage is going to be flexible and so it could be anybody from somebody wanting to make a movie to or film to someone that's starting a media company or a software product we want that flexibility or a media personality where they're like hey i want to be i'm creating the audience to be the next gary vaynerchuk right um we want to see all different types of people and is there a requirement that the company needs to invest in building the platform on Snapchat? No, absolutely not. People don't even have to be on Snapchat to apply, right? But one of the things that you do get is free ad credits and get you know free ad credits and the resources and the network of Snapchat. You get amazing mentors and, and things like that. It's given me the opportunity 
to align myself with and work with, you know, um, however you feel about Snap Inc., one of the, the, the fastest rising, one of the biggest tech companies out right now. Um, and they're, they're highly innovative, highly innovative so much that they are the R&D for Facebook right now, right? Um, but uh, to be able to give people an opportunity diverse set of people are opportunity to follow their dreams and make something of themselves. How many checks are you guys going to write? 10. Okay. Okay. Nice. You're the, the template of the, the, the young black entrepreneur where, uh, you're actively kind of being vocal. Uh, you know, you're working with companies to help others. You're reaching back in the community to help as much as you can, but you don't have the kind of, uh, uh, the milestone where you talk to some people that are like, I'll do that in 10 years after uh, I exit my company or something like that. I'll help later. But by the time that they get so institutionalized in the game, they may not even want to help at the same level, right? So they could be very detached uh, from the community at that point. But you seem like you've been helping on the way up. So you've been successful. You've been starting comp starting companies. Uh, but you're helping on the way up. You're not waiting to be worth a hundred million dollars before you start helping your people. Right. Right. Absolutely. I think is I think is really really important, and it gets overwhelming at times too because you can't help everybody, especially me as someone who's built you know a huge social media audience. I get DMs every day, emails every day, and it's it's hard to help people at scale. And so that's why I try to give nuggets on social media when I can. That's why I try to do speaking engagements where I can talk to people at scale because I can't help every single person. You know, there's going to be somebody that acts about X, Y, Z, and I'm like, oh, you need to listen to this podcast because I talk thoroughly about it in this particular podcast or this particular interview. Um, but I think it's really, really important to not lose sight of bringing others up as you climb up. All right, uh, this is Everett Taylor. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people check you out uh, on Twitter and then also your companies? Yeah, so um, you can check me out um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. It's just my name, Everett, E-V-E-R-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, and Facebook, facebook.com slash Everett Taylor, J-R Jr. Um, and then um, in terms of, you know, my companies, you have uh, millicents.com, which is my marketing firm, uh, growthhackers.com, which is a, a website community and software company. Uh, and then also the my favorite is popsocial.co, so popsocial.co for all those that are trying to grow their brands on Instagram and social media. Um, please go there and you can use the code. I'll just come up with one mogul. 25 for uh $25 off your 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 first month so if you choose the you know the $50 plan that's half off so mogul all capital letters 25 for uh $25 off your first month thanks for coming on the show yeah thank you man let's go cool thanks everybody for listening to go you could check me out at jamarla martin on twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com that's m-o-g-u-l-d-o-m.com be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter you can get the latest information on crypto tech economic empowerment and politics let's go